Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa. We're in the middle of September. Football season has begun. The Cleveland Browns have already been eliminated, and all is right with the world. Let's bring in one Mr. Jim Hill to continue our fall excitement. Jim, how are the leaf peepers doing over in New Hampshire? Well, the leaves are still on the trees up here. Irma may have something to say about that. It's sad. This time of year, if you want fall color... You actually have to go into a swamp and look at a swamp maple. Everything's still green up here. Swamp maple is uh, one of the characters of the uh, the new Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? There we go. Swamp maple, it's a woman. <laughs> All right. We're, we're not going there, Len. We're just, we're going to behave ourselves and stand over here. All right, so Jim, before we get started on our topic today, which is about the chronological history of Disneyland, I have a couple of follow-up questions from readers. One is from Jonathan, who says, what's up with the shape of Disney's Hollywood Studios, and why is it shaped with the layout that it has. I always thought, Jim, it was something that was thrown against a wall and stuck. There's a little truth to that. I'm holding in my hand right now an eyes and ears from October 17th, 1985, and it talks about what was then known as the Disney MGM Studio and Tour. Notice, not Studio Theme Park, Mm -hmm. Studio and Tour, because back then... The plan was that it was mostly a production facility that would allow guests to tour a certain part of it. And so there were whole areas of this thing that were going to be off limits to guests. And the whole park was intended to be a half-day experience. Initially, the thinking was they were going to build Typhoon Lagoon, a half-day water park, a half-day studio tour, and they could then tack on one extra day to everybody's Disney World vacation. So two days at the Kingdom, one day at Epcot, additional day at Typhoon Lagoon, and Mm. MGM Studio and Tour. Disney gets to line its pockets a bit more. It was only later when they began to realize that, well, how do we handle the admission pricing for these things? I mean, we can't charge full boat for the studio because it's only a half-day park. <laughs> Some sentiments, Jim, are still still valid today. <laughs> and they'd already begun to pour the concrete. Yeah, they'd already begun to go vertical with the construction when it's like, well, sure. I think, think we need to add other stuff. And so if you talk even today with Bob Weiss, the gentleman who's now the VP in charge of Imagineering, mm-hmm. MGM was his baby. And the fact that as they were building it, Eisner kept going, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, we're going to add this, and just sort of like, uh, okay, the boss wants more stuff, and we'll start adding it at the peripheries, and we'll find places to put things. Oh. And so okay. that's why you have that very... Unproperty Brothers open concept layout. <laughs> Thank you for that, by the way. All right, Jim. So uh, let's stay with the studios and go over another mm-hmm. question from Paul. Paul wants to know if Disney is interested in any other studios' intellectual property like James Bond, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, Mission Impossible, Ghostbusters, Planet of the Apes, anything like that. Is there any plans for Disney to allocate or license anybody else's successful franchise? If we're talking about lights, motor, action, that was initially supposed to be the James Bond stunt show, and Disney just couldn't come to terms with the Broccoli family. Star Trek? I mean, you got to remember that Eisner was the guy who greenlit the Star Trek, the motion picture, and Mm -hmm. basically brought the franchise back from the dead. Lately, I've been hearing more about Star Trek 
from the universal point of view. In fact, there's been some discussion of a Star Trek attraction replacing Terminator 2 3D. Really? Yeah. I guess the folks at Universal began eyeballing doing a Star Trek-themed attraction. Unfortunately, Star Trek Beyond didn't do the business that I think anybody expected. Well, it's been a pretty slow year for Hollywood in general, right? It, it has. It has been. Getting back to Disney and IP, to be honest... At a time when Disney has Star Wars and has Marvel and has Pixar and Muppets and everything that Disney Animation Studios are turning out, they don't really need to look beyond what they have. Every Sunday night now, you can turn on XD and watch Hotel Transylvania, the animated series, on Disney. That's a Sony IP. Yeah, I was say, that was... That probably makes it for a better a short cartoon than it does a, a long movie, because that second movie was tough to get through. Yeah, and uh, there's a third one coming, Glenn. Just, just warning you now. Is there really? Yes, it's Dracula huh. on a cruise ship being stalked by the relative of Van Helsing. And it, it's kooky, zany, funny. <laughs> All right. I'm fine. sure it'll be good. All right, well, let's think before we jump into our chronological Disney. We had talked a couple shows ago about a... Tomorrowland cast member named Mike Beaver, who the Orlando Sentinel did an article on about his 45-minute commute each way to his job in Tomorrowland, where he makes $13.02 an hour. We talked a little bit about the job that Mike had done and whether customer service was a, uh, a career or not, and sort of how Disney looks at, at this particular thing. So we got an interesting letter from a listener named Sue. She made a couple of good points and offered her opinion on these things. She asked me for my opinion, so if you don't mind... James, I would like to go through this here. So I've actually written out most of this. Oh, please. Go ahead. So I will skim at most uh, some of the letter and some of my responses. But uh, it starts like this. This is from Sue. Just listened to some of the more recent podcasts on Bandcamp while driving back and forth to North Carolina. One of the recent ones was on the cast member who spends a lot of time getting to his job on the bus. I saw a story on the local news a few weeks ago, and I was interested in your viewpoint about a living wage. We're originally from what I like to call the welfare states or slash city of New York City where this is a hot topic. I'm not sure what a living wage is and what the entitlement should be. So let's pause there. So a living wage is actually defined as the minimum income standard that if somebody makes it, it draws a very fine line between the financial independence of the working poor and the need to seek out public assistance or suffer consistent and severe housing and food insecurity. And by the way, I'm using the definition of living wage from the Living Wage Initiative at MIT. I'll post a link to it in the show notes. But basically what it says is living wage is another way of measuring basic needs. Uh, if you look at the market prices in a specific geography for things like food, childcare, health insurance, housing, transportation, and so on, that's what you uh, use to figure out what the living wage is. So it's basically one step up from poverty, and it makes sure that you don't need government assistance. But it does not include things like pre-prepared meals, or visiting restaurants, it doesn't include entertainment, it doesn't include leisure time activities, unpaid vacation, holidays, and it doesn't include anything for like saving for the future. So like saving for a car, a home, or retirement. So I did a little bit of research on this. The living wage in Osceola and Orange Counties in Florida is eleven fifty-one an hour. So Mike makes about a buck fifty, buck fifty-one more than that, or on sixty dollars a week, or thirty-one hundred dollars a year. For two adults, the uh, living wage is a little over $9 an hour. For two adults and one kid, it's $13.54 per adult, or right at $27.08 an hour combined. And so those numbers are interesting for a couple of reasons. One is, if you look at what the living wage is, 
and what Disney's hourly wages, they basically tell you that Disney thinks of frontline customer service as something that a household of one or two people with no dependents does, because that's what the PASIC can support. So if you're single, you can't afford a child or a dependent like a parent. If you've got two adults together, you can't afford a child either at those rates. So basically Disney's saying no dependents in a household if you work at Disney. That's the explanation of living wage. Sue continues, do I think an excellent attitude and work ethic should be rewarded? Yes, I do. Merit increases is the way to go, but many times unions prevent that. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the case with Disney. Actually, there's a lot of stuff on unions available. They're negotiating their contract right now, right, Jim? That is my understanding, yeah. So merit raises in unions are sort of an interesting idea because when we think of unions and wages, we think primarily of collective bargaining, which is on the opposite end of the, the spectrum from merit raises. There are lots of studies on the wage effects of unions. The results are generally predictable by p- political affiliation. And here I'm using the political affiliation rankings of uh, mediabiasfactcheck.com. You can look up there where your favorite news outlet sits on the political spectrum. So in terms of my political spectrum, I'm basically the love child of Angela Merkel and Paul Krugman. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they, they may not have even met for all I know, but I'm saying yeah, theoretically. Okay, so the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, is one of many organizations rated least biased by Media Bias Fact Check. And it happens that the NBER has a number of studies on the effect of unions and wages. In one study from 2002, of 17 countries, including the United States, was reported that unions raise wages by about 12% higher than they would otherwise be. And that's also in line with a 2013 report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that looked at the United States union and non-union hourly wages from 2001 to 2011, and showed that hourly wages for unionized workers were 18 to 24% higher than non-union jobs. So there's some indication that even if unions prevent merit increases, the overall effect of unions is higher wages for workers. So there's uh, around a quarter million non-union theme park workers in the United States. The average hourly wage in 2016 for them was around 10.58 an hour. So that's actually less than the living hourly wage in Walt Disney World. And the other interesting thing is if you look at the 75th percentile of those quarter million non-union theme park workers, they still only make 11.38 an hour. That's also under the living hourly wage for one adult. To sum up all of this, we can't really know what Disney would set wages at without a union, obviously because they have a union, and we don't know what Mike's wages would be without a union and just based on its personal merit, but there's a lot of evidence that Disney's overall wages would be lower without a union. So Sue continues, all of that being said, how much more are you willing to pay for admission and meals on property? Because the increases for a living wage have to come from somewhere. So I I did the math on this actually. There are around 37,000 Walt Disney World workers represented by unions, and if we wanted Mike let's say, to get uh, to a point where he could get married to another cast member and support a kid on a living wage, we'd need to bump up his hourly wage by 52 cents an hour. So let's assume that all 37,000 union workers get the same wage. They all work 2,080 hours a year, and they all need to get that 52 cent raise. That's an additional cost of, I'll give you the math, 37,000 times 2,080 times 52 cents. That works out to be a little over $40 million a year. Fair enough. So we got to come up with $40 million somewhere, Jim. This is a problem that you and I face every day, right? Where am I going to get this $40 I picked million the from? couch cushions. All right. <laughs> so $40 million sounds like a lot of money, right? I mean, $40 million is $40 million, right? So there's a site called trefis.com, T-R-E-F-I-S.com. They break down SEC reports, Securities and Exchange Commission reports. Disney's domestic parks made $15.4 billion in 2016. Two-thirds of uh, Disney's theme parks are in Orlando. Most of its hotel rooms are in Orlando. All of its water parks are in Orlando. So let's say that, for kicks, 75% of Disney's domestic theme park income 
comes from Walt Disney World. That's around $11.5 billion. We need to come up with 40 million. That's about one third of 1% of $11.5 billion. So Disney's prices would need to go up by one third of 1% in order to cover our little, uh, cover our little wage increase. Uh, so a bottle of water would rise in price from $3 to $3.01. A bottle of Coke would similarly rise from $3.50 to $3.51. An adult dinner buffet at Beer Garden would go from $40 to $40.14. And our room at Pop Century during a peak weekend night which costs $208 right now, would rise by 73 cents. That would cover the living wage for all of the employees like Mike. Hmm. All right, so a couple other things. I'm not sure that these entry-level jobs were meant, are or were meant to be careers, and that the wage is not meant to support someone. So that's from Sue. Actually, that, that's kind of a true assumption. The median tenure for all service workers in the U.S. is around three years. It's definitely not a career. You can also look at the wages, right? Because we said this before, your paycheck is telling you that this is not uh, an entry-level job, and you can see that, right? You, it doesn't pay enough to raise a child or care for anyone else. And Jim, you and I both know that there are uh, workers in Disney who have spouses with much, much better-paying jobs, or for and there are cast members for who this is literally their retirement job. They own their home, they make enough money at Disney to pay for their food and utility bills, so they don't have to use their savings. That said. The average job tenure for Disney is around eight years. So clearly, lots of people are making this their career. So why is the average tenure eight years? Probably because they pay higher than average wages for the area. Sue continues, our property taxes are pretty high in Orange County, so I'm not sure where the money could come from to help on the housing issue. Maybe a sales tax could help fund this. It's an issue that every large city is coping with. So this is actually an interesting question. And the question is whether the uh, taxpayers could uh, should, should subsidize Disney's cast members if, if they can't make a living wage from Disney. I would point it out this way, and I'll, I'll end this little talk on this. Disney made $2.8 billion in profit off its theme parks in 2016. I'm not sure why taxpayers would have to subsidize Disney's employees. So those employees can earn a living wage that should probably fall on Disney's shareholders and customers first. I can actually get behind that. I think it took a lot of money to buy Marvel. It took a lot of money to buy Pixar and the expansion of the company and the ambition of the company. You need actual people to run these things who should be able to have some dignity and have a home and you know, be able to have children. There's a disconnect. But again, this isn't just Disney. In today's corporate America, the level of profit taking that does not in fact trickle down is genuinely disturbing. The very thing you talk about, you know, a penny more for Coke or... Yeah, a fraction of one cent. And that's actually similar to um, studies that I've seen done for Walmart workers. So Walmart is sort of the poster child for employees who rely on government assistance to get by. There's lots of, uh, lots of studies on that. Len, when's the last year that Disney didn't raise the prices at the parks? I mean, it was probably during the Great Recession when we all thought we were going to die. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, similar studies that I've seen for Walmart asking questions like how much more would Walmart shoppers have to pay in order to get all Walmart employees off of government assistance. It ended up being one cent more per item. And I'm not entirely sure that that would break the bank for Walmart shoppers. But even if it did, I think the argument could be made that it's between Walmart shoppers and Walmart, not between taxpayers there you go. and Walmart. I mean, this is the way I look at it. If this makes $2.8 billion, they should be able to pay their employees the living wage to raise a family. Anyway... Enough of that. Let's talk about chronological Disneyland. So we're gonna we're gonna stay with our studios theme here. Yeah, and we're gonna talk about the is the history of Toontown. Toontown. 
Well, yeah, it occurred to me, given the amount of talking Lennon and I have done recently about Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, this is not the first time that the studio tried to do a ride-through attraction built around the company's corporate symbol. Those of you who've been following this series might remember when Len and I have talked about the Dumbo Circus area. This was a land that was supposed to be oh, built right, yeah. at Disneyland in mid-1970s. It was actually going to be adjacent to Discovery Bay and would have been built right where the Fantasyland Theater is built right now. But one of the key components of Dumbo Circus was a dark ride called Mickey's Madhouse. And Disney legend Bill Justice actually did a lot of the initial development on this, which was supposed to be a celebration of the black and white shorts that Mickey starred in in the late 20s and the early 30s. And once you got inside the ride, it would be entirely devoid of color, that every prop, every set, every character would only be done in gray, black, or white. To help put across that old-timey movie feel, the soundtrack for Mickey's Madhouse was to have used the same limited instrumentation that Walt and Ub Iwerks used back in 1928 when they recorded the synchronized sound for Steamboat Willie. They had to go all the way back to the 1920s and 30s to find a fun, feisty version of Mickey Mouse because once they started the color cartoons in the late 30s, this character got really bland. And you can actually see that reflected in the Mickey attractions that actually did make it out the door. I mean, if you look at the Mickey Mouse Review from 71, or for that matter, Mickey's Philharmagic. I think, Len, you were the one once mentioned, this really should be called Donald's Philharmagic, because Mickey is barely in it. He's a cameo, if anything. Yeah, I mean, he's in the beginning scene, he's at the ending scene. But this is actually something that Leonard Maltin had noted in his uh, Mm -hmm. fabulous book about Disney animation, that basically once Mickey Mouse got super popular, Walt was terrified of... It probably wasn't Walt, it was the, the corporate suits, were terrified mm-hmm. of making Mickey do anything that looked unseemly or undignified or mean or anything like that. Because he was the national symbol of the Disney Corporation, he couldn't do the things that Donald got to do in a cartoon. So as a result, I mean, the cartoonists, the animators, stopped using him. That's one of the reasons they defaulted to Donald, because Donald exactly. could still be funny. He had this volcanic temper. This persists today, Len? But there's one cartoon, even today, that honestly is one of my favorite things that Disney Studios has ever done. The Runaway Brain from 1995. (laughs) That was the one that signaled that maybe the thought around Mickey was was changing. Runaway Brain was funny. But here's the thing. This wonderful film that Chris Bailey directed, it's out of canon. Disney no longer acknowledges this movie. And it's honestly one of the funniest things they've ever done. With Mickey. But yeah, Disney to this day is still ridiculously protective of of Mickey Mouse. Even as bland as the character became in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Our appearance uh, last month at the Indie Disney Meet, I did a lot of research on Henry Landreth, the gentleman behind the Give the Kids Village in Kissimmee, Florida. And Henry came across this kind of stunning bit of information in that when they went to terminally ill children and we were like what would you like to do because your time mm-hmm. on the planet is dwindling 70 percent of these kids said they wanted to go to disney world because they wanted to meet mickey mouse even as bland and dumbed down as yeah. the character was during that period it meant that much to these kids 
And you have to understand that this is during a time when everything that Disney's done to try to put the character out there again, whether it's things like the Mickey Mouse disco album or the revival of the Mickey Mouse Club television show in 77 that crashed and burned six months after they began production. Even something like Mickey's Christmas Carol, which is really a high-quality, wonderful mm-hmm. you know, adaption of the Charles Dickens holiday classic, still didn't do anything at the box office. So To be fair, Jim, I mean, lots of people want to meet the Pope, too, and the, the Pope isn't Donald Duck in terms of temperament, right? Well, not this Mickey. Pope. <laughs> <laughs> not this Pope, right. But Mickey's a symbol, right? He accepts people for who they are. He's, just, he's always an optimist. He's yep. positive. I mean, there's a lot to be said for the characteristics that were still left in Mickey's persona, right? And that's why kids like him. Uh, by the way, I, uh, do you know why they made his birthday November 18th, 1928? No, I don't. Did that have something to do with the film release? Actually, yeah. It's Dave Smith, the archivist emeritus at the Walt Disney Company, kept getting this question, what is Mickey's birthday? What is Mickey's birthday? And Dave was like, well, first of all, he's a cartoon character. He doesn't have a birthday. But that wasn't going to satisfy anybody. No, not, not the right answer, Dave. Yeah. Not, the, not the answer people are looking for. Yeah, and so what Dave eventually does is he drills down. Steamboat Willie screened for the first time in front of a paying audience November 18th, 1928. And as far as Dave Smith was concerned, that was when the character was born. When people bought tickets, sat in his chair, and watched him in that first fully synchronized silent sure. cartoon. So Dave was the one, okay, from here on in, that's his birthday. So every division of the company is going to get on board. The Disney store, they're committing to this full line of Mickey is 60 merch. The television division gets NBC on board, and they're going to do an hour-long special on November 13th, five yeah. days away from the official birthday. And for parks and resorts, it was like, okay, we'll just do what we normally do. We'll just do a parade. And that was the plan right up until January, February of 1988. But Dick Nunes, who's the head of parks and resorts, a report comes across his desk. And it's like, attendance level is down at Walt Disney World. And, well, why is that? So they do the research, and what they find is that... For a lot of people, they're holding off on their next trip to Orlando because Disney MGM Studios isn't due to open till May of 1989. And it's like, why go if there's nothing new of size for me to see? I mean, you've got this whole brand new park. Oh, Jim, they could just reissue that memo right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Bob Iger's listening to the show going, pull up that newness memo. That's right. I want to see that. But here's the difference between that era of the Disney company and this era of the Disney company. Nunes looks at that and realizes, well, we're going to have something. He turns to the Imagineers and says, what can we do? And it's like, well, what if we create a land that only exists between when we open it and when Disney Hollywood Studios opens? A temporary land. So temporary land. Find us over until studios open. Okay, fair enough. That's it exactly. So it's like they have to go to Eisner and get the money for this thing. But they, they find three acres of land that has a, a piece of straightaway for the Disneyland Railroad that would allow them to build a temporary train station. Eisner says yes. It's in Fantasyland, right? It's between... Uh... Between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. Yeah. In fact, they had to carve out a little bit of the Autopia track to accommodate this thing. Anyway, they make this decision in March of 1988. Mm-hmm. June 13th of 1988, this land opened. <laughs> I mean, not let's have the press conference. You know, modern day Disney, 
it would take that long to make the press release announcing that this place would be open <laughs> in five years. All right, 90 days. They ransacked every Home Depot in the area, I'm convinced, for this. The funny thing about this is, is you go into it, there are no right angles to anything. And it's hard to build buildings without right angles. Oh, God. Yeah. A lot of people now think about Mickey's Birthday Land. That's the, the name they settle on for this thing. They look at it and think, oh, what a wonderful job they did with that and all the curves and that sort of thing. Well, it's like, that's actually work that was done for the 96 version. Oh, really? Oh, was it tense to begin with? Well, boy, were they tense. Hurricane Andrew happens basically four years later. Oh, right. yeah. And buildings codes everywhere, including at Disney Change, because so many of the buildings that initially housed Mickey's Birthday Lands were temporary tents. Mm-hmm. If you take a look at the original version of Mickey's house that was created for Mickey's Birthday Land and the version that people knew from 96 from touring Mickey's Toontown Fair. Yep. There were significant design changes, a lot of which actually were driven by stuff that it was eventually done for Mickey's Toontown in California. Speaking of which, though, they get this place open. Nancy Reagan was down at Disney World a week beforehand. One of the PR guys from Disney persuaded her could we go over to Mickey's thing? Gonna get, could you cut a piece of cake? And so here's the first lady of the wow. country with Mickey Mouse. But that photo gets grabbed and goes round the world. And Disney gets millions upon millions of dollars of free publicity wow. for Mickey's birthday land. It becomes this massive hit. Spring of 89, it's time to pull the plug on Mickey's birthday land. And, it, yeah. and <laughs> Disney just can't bring itself to do it. People are still lining up. This thing is making money hand over fist, especially in the post-show area. The money that Disney was making for parents who were waiting inside of County Bounty for their kids to do the meet and greet with Mickey. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a captive audience, right? Yeah. So they couldn't bring themselves to close it. One of the other things that really Mm -hmm. put gas in the tank is nine days after Mickey's birthday land opened, on June 22nd, 1988, Who Framed Roger Rabbit opens in theaters. And suddenly, Mickey actually, because of his his wonderful cameo in that movie with Bugs Bunny, kind of becomes hot again. What was weird is that, like, in 89, Disney's like, all right, well, we'll keep it open for one more year. But when the crowd dies, we're going to pull this down, right? Right. And by 1990, it's clear that the crowd is not dying. So I remember this. Yeah, We're yeah, yeah. well past Mickey's birthday, so now it becomes Mickey's Starland. And then in 1995, in kind of a weird meta, because Toy Story is out in theaters, it suddenly becomes, at least for a season... Mickey's Toyland? I don't, I don't remember this. Yeah, I mean, it's just this relatively short window. Because, again, remember, they're looking for a way to bring the Pixar characters into the park. And Toy Story opens in November of 1995, and there's no easy way to bring them in. So it's like, okay, it's Mickey's Toyland with his oversized friends, Buzz Lightyear and Woody the Cowboy. After that comes the 25th anniversary. They close that part of the park in, in January of 96 and do the redo for Mickey's Toontown Fair. And that opens in time for the 25th anniversary for Walt Disney World. But meantime, here's Anaheim watching all of this going on. And it's like, you're making how much? You know, and, and what is that measuring for guest satisfaction? And, and it's like, we need to get one of those. And... That's what we'll talk about next time, about how they got one of those. 
So the, the problem with Disneyland faces, Jim, is that they don't have the same kind of land, right? They don't have the area between Fantasyland and, and Tomorrowland. But we'll talk about that on the next show. There we go. All right, folks. You've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go into iTunes and Stitcher and your local railroad and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. Also, send in those listener questions. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.